The date is Friday, July 10th, and you're listening to Entertain This, a thought-provoking podcast encapsulating all things entertainment. In this episode, we'll discuss the 2019 theatrical release, Knives Out, directed by Ryan Johnson. This star-studded cast plays interesting characters in a classic whodunit, and a rich, deep meaning about what it means to live in America today. Enjoy! Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Entertain This. Entertain This. I am Alex. I'm Michael. And I am Nick. Welcome back, guys. It's another week. It's another week, another episode. It is episode 18 Mm. of the podcast. I lost track after like six. (laughs) Yeah, we're on something teen. (laughs) Something that's kind of exciting is that once we hit episode 24, you have a full 24 hours of nothing but listening to our voice, which is both terrifying and extraordinary. It's a great yeah. time. Yeah. We should make a sleep track so people can listen to us while we sleep. We while could do that. Sleep. We need to hit all audio mediums. We need to do sleep tracks, podcasts, ASMR. Uh, just so that we have it said and we use our platform for good things, please. Uh, COVID-19 is still on the rise uh, in America, and there are things that we can do to prevent it that we should be doing. If you're listening to this podcast, please make sure that if you leave the house, you're wearing a mask. Uh, stay six feet away from each other. Try not to get in large groups. Uh, all the things that they've been telling us to do from the beginning, it is very important. It is a crucial time to turn the tides on this. So make sure you're doing that. Absolutely. With that out of the way, let's get started on today's topic. All right, all right. So Alex, it's your week to host. That is correct. It is my week, um, which is great because it gives you two a break. Mm-hmm. Uh, just like on your guys' weeks, I get a break. And on our guest week, we all three get a break, which is really nice. Our podcast. We all get a little like siesta. The bad part is, is on your week, it feels like you are carrying the weight of the world on your shoulders. <laughs> Don't you love it? Oh, I absolutely love it. I spent all night last night writing this up and all day today finishing up some notes, and I still didn't finish everything that I wanted to. Um, but I feel like we have a really great podcast coming up here. So just to fill us in here, because we have a, a wiener measuring contest of sorts between how many pages of notes you have. So please tell us that. So my unfinished script... Uh, which probably should be longer, but I stopped taking notes and decided that at the end I'm just going to talk from my heart, um, is eight pages. All right, yeah, that's I think it. you're usually around ten pages, right? No, uh, the Bioshock one had eight, and then what was after that? Memes had like six. Okay. And then what was the one after that? That probably had like ten. <laughs> so we're still uh, we're in the same ballpark here. Yeah, we're, we're right neck and neck. Yep. Double-spaced, of course. Yes. Most I've ever had is four. And besides that, everything was about five bullet points in a Wikipedia page. <laughs> Which is really all you need, honestly. <laughs> it's really, every, all, if it works, it works. And yeah. I'm not going to question anything about that. But it's, you know, it's difficult every week. Uh, it's not always difficult. Sometimes we know what we want to talk about, but sometimes we don't. Sometimes it's a labor of love. You're right. And I was so set on one particular thing that I wanted to talk about, um, which I might use in a future episode. So mm-hmm. stay tuned. But... I ended up not going with that thing because something extraordinary happened that I'll get into later. Um, And I switched topics completely. Interesting. And I'm really excited about it. So so just tune in and... Are you going to say it? Entertain this. Entertain this. Yeah. (laughs) There it is. (laughs) So today I want to present to you a modern day mystery that I feel like I have solved. Something that I don't think anyone else has figured out about a movie... That only had a theatrical release last year. Okay. A theatrical release as in they made the movie? No, as in it was released to theaters, which isn't something that 
we've seen a lot of this year, unfortunately. Ah, uh, I get, I get what you're oh, putting okay. down. Yeah. So it was released to theaters. Yeah, I catch the spit you're flapping. Last year. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's still relatively new, and it's still on a lot of people's minds. I'm not going to tell. I mean, you saw the title of the podcast, so you probably know what it is. But just, just for my own little making the moment for you two, I'm not going to say yet what that movie is because first I want to give you guys a bit of context. Okay. Uh, I read your the text, movie. so I already know what it is. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> uh, so I want to start with a quote. And the quote is, but it is in matters beyond the limits of mere rule that the skill of the analyst is evinced. He makes in silence a host of observation and inference. But if you guys had to guess who maybe said that quote, who would you guess? I would have no clue. Some detective guy? I don't know. Some detective guy? That's interesting. Yeah. Um, That was actually Edgar Allan Poe. Really? Would you believe? And it was from a short story that he wrote called The Murders in the Rue Morgue. Which, like, from the title... Yeah, immediately sounds like, sounds like yeah. it sounds like something <laughs> Edgar Allan Poe would write. Yeah, but I think it, you're going to be surprised. It's either something that Edgar Allan Poe wrote or something that an emo sixth grader wrote on the bathroom <laughs> stall. There is, the difference there is absolutely yes. no difference between those two things. So, written at a time when crime was at the forefront of people's minds during the urban development of uh, of London, basically they were building these big cities and apartment buildings, and that's when all of that had started. Um, so we're talking 1830-ish? We're talking 1841. Okay, yeah, around that ballpark. Okay. Yeah. So the story was originally published in Graham's Magazine in 1841, as I mentioned. Uh, and it contains the first accounts of the fictional detective. Like, what do you mean by the fictional detective? The very first accounts of this idea of a guy who walks around who doesn't work for the police. Oh, okay. Like a private eye. Like a private eye. Like okay. a detective. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. But, okay, I, I get what you're saying. Now, I thought you were meaning, like, it was, like, the character, this longer-lived character. But, no, like, the concept of... Yeah, the, the word detective actually is oh. one of Edgar Allan Poe's, like, something that he, like... Oh, had, okay. Huh. Which is something that maybe you didn't know about. Edgar no, Poe. I didn't, which is why I was so confused. <laughs> yeah, fun facts. There we go. I love them. So his, his detective was known as C. August... I think it's pronounced, and I might pronounce this wrong because it's technically French, Dupin, spelled D-U-P-I-N. It's Dupin. Okay. According to how people have sounded it out to me. Okay, yeah. And he is a gentleman living in Paris who solves, mystery, who solves the mystery of a brutal murder of two women. Mm-hmm. Using only deduction and inference, as well as hair from the crime scene that doesn't appear human, Dupin and his partner, the unnamed narrator to which we or to which he had recently become roommates with, figure out, I shit you not, that it was a loose orangutan that had committed the murders, and in doing so, frees an innocent man who was blamed for the murder. <laughs> is this supposed to be like one of those comedy things, or is this like an actual... Well, it's, it's, it was very serious. <laughs> wow. it's, it's Edgar Allan Poe. Yeah. Yeah, he never made a joke in his life. At least not any, like, bright and humorous ones, yeah. like an orangutan on the, on like, the loose. And then he died. Is so, that the joke, really? <laughs> so, so Edgar Allan Poe came before Arthur Conan Doyle. Correct. So, okay, so that's very interesting. Like yeah, that, something that maybe you didn't expect. No, because from what you described, that sounds more like something that I would expect from Sherlock Holmes. That's correct. So, yeah, very interesting is that in the very first uh, Sherlock Holmes story, um, we are first introduced to the narrator of 
the Sherlock Holmes stories, who was his partner, Watson. And in the very first story for Edgar Allan Poe, Watson moves in with Sherlock. In Ed- I maybe messed that up. Okay, I was going to say, I was like, in Edgar Allan Poe's, he had a Sherlock in a home? <laughs> Sorry, no. Uh, in, in, in the very first Sherlock Holmes story. Gotcha, okay. Watson okay. moves in with Sherlock. There we go. Um, okay. so, so we're seeing those comparisons. Now, this is in 1841 that this story of Dupin and his, um, his partner, who remains unnamed, and only had this one kind of mystery that they had, mm-hmm. um, this is when those are released. And it's strange to think that the grandfather of horror, Edgar Allan Poe, started the beloved mystery genre that is so popular today. But when you think about it, it kind of makes perfect sense. Yeah. Because I think, personally, mystery is directly related to fear. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the whole degree, like we can go into the whole like uh, eldritch fears, but the greatest fear is fear of the unknown. Exactly. Yeah, so it's kind of like that that fear of not knowing something that bothers us to our core, and figuring it out is wrestling and defeating that fear. Mm-hmm. Basically looking at dead in the eye and being like, I know what you are. Yeah. I'm not afraid of you. And like on the contrary of like Edgar Allan Poe is the whole, um, uh, I can't remember his name, but he's like the creator of like the Cthulhu mytho- mythos. Um, yeah, that racist Lovecraft. Guy. Lovecraft. That's Lovecraft. Yeah, that's it's kind of like the opposite of Lovecraft because like Lovecraft horror is all based off of like the more you figure out, the less you know. Right. Whereas like a mystery novel is more of like the uh, abstract idea of wrestling and overcoming, like you said, that fear. Yeah, and if I'm if I'm not incorrect in saying, I'm pretty sure that Lovecraft was like way after this. Lovecraft was like. I'm gonna look it up real quick. Something to look up. Yeah. Well, you're almost kind of. Knocking on the door of Scooby Doo, right? Oh yes, <laughs> a little yeah, bit. Oh, little bit. we're more than I'm knocking. Buddy. Okay, because like the entire episode, any episode of Scooby Doo is about unmasking the monster, the gremlin, the the ghoul, or whatever. Mm, yeah, but it's really just a dude in a camouflage costume. Yeah, I old really man like, Jenkins or something like that. You know, I really like you saying unmasking the monster. Yeah. I want you to hold on to that as we move forward. Okay, because that's going to come into play a lot as we talk about the things that we're going to kind of talk about. I don't want to say that this podcast is going to act as an anthology to mystery, um, but it will lead us down the path to discuss this thing that I'm really excited about talking about. So Edgar Allan Poe came 70 years before Lovecraft. Yes. Mm -hmm. So who's to say that Lovecraft didn't take a little inspiration? He very well could have, yeah. And he, he most likely did. I think it's that if we're afraid of like a murderer on the loose, when we catch them... That satiates that fear. It kind of brings it full circle, and now that's something we don't have to worry about. Yeah, I would say, it, like, a, maybe a better way to phrase it is, like, it adds comfort on top of the fear. Like, it, it adds, like, the opposite. Yeah, he's locked up. I don't yeah. have to worry about him anymore. Exactly. Right. It's, yeah. And that's kind of, I think, what the huge appeal of Edgar Allan Poe's story was to the people. Mm-hmm. They were like, this is just because Dupin was, I mean... He wasn't a, a detective. There was no term for detective. He didn't solve murders for financial gain. He goes so far as to deny the reward money for even finding the lost orangutan that's offered to him. Like the, the soldier who had brought this orangutan onto this yeah. main world from this boat basically was like, I have reward money for finding my orangutan. He's like, I don't want it. I was just here. The, the reason that he solved the murder was purely for his own amusement. And to do more uh he also 
was able to free an innocent man who was falsely accused of this murder. And that was what he wanted to do. He didn't do it because of the money or anything like that, you know? Yeah. And it's kind of the fact that he is an everyman who he he wasn't a part of the police force. The police force had basically given up and went ready to lock away this guy. He was just a guy off the street who was smart and he was able to deduce what actually happened and he saved that man's life. And it's that kind of everyman character that Edgar Allan Poe created in this man that kind of brought people to the idea of like, I don't need to be afraid because I can figure this out. So keep all of that in mind moving forward as we talk. Um, the The weird thing about Dupin, though, is that, and I'm again, I've probably pronounced it seven different ways, and I'm probably going to get it wrong. Um, he didn't have training or cause. He was just intelligent and observant, and those were the things that eventually led him to the actual killer. Uh, this is clear when he is able to correctly guess the thoughts of the narrator on multiple occasions, using only what he has said in the past and his body language. Now, we're still talking about Dupin, the detective from Edgar Allan Poe. Yeah. But all of this, as you have noticed and have said, sounds a bit familiar. Yeah. Um, And we often find the answers to our questions in these details when we start looking for them. An intelligent man and his partner solve mysteries as independent contracts using mostly deduction and analysis. Mm -hmm. This is ringing some bells. Not for me, but yeah. Really? Nothing I, for you? No, I'm not really into the whole solving a mystery type of shows or drama or anything like that. I really don't know Sherlock Holmes all that much. Okay. I've heard plenty about him, but yeah. I haven't actually like sat down and watched an episode or read a book or anything like that. But even so, you know just from that, like yeah. Sherlock Holmes. Mm-hmm. He's a detective. Obviously. He solves so, crimes. That's what he does. So from someone who like studies it to someone who has like, openly avoided it, like we know who Sherlock Holmes is. Yeah. yeah. It's, he's an icon. Exactly. Well, yeah. not a real person, but the archetype. character. Yeah, the, the character Sherlock is an icon. Yeah, I would say that when you think about the first detective in your head, you don't think about Dupin. You think about Sherlock, obviously. I think about the incognito guy. You know, when you hit Command Shift N on Chrome. That you are the icon? only person oh. who thinks of that. Okay, well, uh. <laughs> at least in this group. It's probably because Nick sees it very, very often. <laughs> That's right. It's probably true. When I'm doing research. (laughs) But yeah, as I mentioned before, Sherlock Holmes also partnered with his roommate to solve crimes. Um, I don't even need to question if you know who Sherlock Holmes is, because by the 1990s, there had been over 25,000 adaptations of him throughout all of entertainment. Wow. 25,000 to the point where uh, the Guinness Book of World Records gave Sherlock Holmes the record for having the most people portray him in fiction in stage performance, in TV, Sherlock Holmes has the Guinness Book of World Record for the most people to portray so, him as a character. Question for you then. Go is ahead. that I don't know if you if this is something you would know, but do you think that, that is a matter of like his sheer popularity or if there was like some legal like setting where like it was okay for people to use this other character that another person came up with. Like, I don't know. Copyright type thing. Right. Um, Like, I don't know the rules of like early 1900s England. Well, this isn't early 1900s because the first Sherlock Holmes story wasn't published until 1887. So, okay. So just, yeah. So a few, a few decades earlier, it's a few decades earlier, but I think it's important to kind of note too. Um, and to go back to your question, first off, um, 
there's like a certain length of time that a trade like a trademark or a uh, copywritten. copywritten character um can belong to one person and then it becomes free game we're seeing like a problem with mickey mouse happening yeah, where, like, say. mickey mouse is starting to become <laughs> a public a domain Don't yeah. do it. Um, <laughs> unless they like use some legal loopholes or something which, you which know they, they will they, yeah. they, they already did. have i know that they used yeah. legal loopholes to basically they didn't stop it from becoming public domain but they stopped anyone from using it until a certain like court thing happens it was that, 70 years plus like 30 or something like that yeah like because after the person dies that yeah. originally created it gotcha right uh that's what i think it is oh now God. can you imagine mickey mouse in public domain it would be <laughs> terrifying <laughs> would it be worse than it is now honestly uh, <laughs> it wouldn't be curated and that's what i'm worried <laughs> no about. that's true <laughs> so not, now just earned a copyright strike congratulations <laughs> there it is <laughs> so yeah, so the first Sherlock Holmes story came out 46 years after Edgar Allan Poe published The Murder in the Room Morgue, which just kind of to get an idea of, we have this story that you're like, oh, this is way similar to Sherlock Holmes, but that was 46 years before Sherlock Holmes ever existed. Right. So, I mean, the writing's on the wall that, uh, that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle mm-hmm. probably took a little inspiration from Edgar Allan Poe. Yeah. So the very first story was entitled A Study in Scarlet, in which we can spot um, where he hits the same notes as his predecessor. Yep. Uh, we are first introduced to Watson after serving uh, in the Second Anglo-Afghan War. He returns to London looking for a place to stay and a job before his pension runs out. A friend of his points him in the direction of the eccentric Sherlock Holmes who quickly deduces that Watson had recently been to Afghanistan, thus piquing the interest of Watson, which is just almost beat for beat. Right. The story that Edgar Allan Poe had written almost 50 years before. Watson, of course, moves into the apartment on Baker Street, and thus the adventure of Holmes and Watson begins. These adventures would become the main focus of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle until eventually retiring the character of Sherlock Holmes to beekeeping. Something that you may not know. No. Yeah, he, Sherlock Holmes retired to be a beekeeper. Yeah. All right. Yep. It's a noble profession. It's an honest day's work, as they say. Yeah. But he didn't retire to beekeeping until after faking his own death, to which the fans of Doyle of Doyle's series uh, started wearing a black armband to show they were mourning the fictional character. Huh. <laughs> All over the place, people started wearing these black armbands. Yeah. And basically mourning the loss of Sherlock Holmes. That's why, and I think originally Sir Arthur Conan Doyle had planned on killing off this character. But because of the people, he was like, hey, he fakes his own death. He retires as a beekeeper. <laughs> it's a happy ending. Right. That's all we want. Right. So it's clear that the world loved these stories of mystery and intelligence. The stories, often written with great detail, allowed the readers the opportunity to follow along and pick out clues to solve the mystery, as Holmes did. And it was then a logical next step to create a product in which a similar experience could be offered. Do you guys know which direction I'm leaning in? I feel like I'm getting a good sense. Goosebumps? Goosebumps? Yeah. Maybe? <laughs> that was a guess. It was a good guess. <laughs> Are you afraid of the dark? Mm, another go. good guess. Yeah. Or Stein. Well, Here we're going to we take it a little bit before all of those. Back oh, in okay. 1944 with a man named uh, Anthony E. Pratt, who was an English musician. Hmm. He applied for a patent of his invention of a murder mystery themed game. Clue. Okay, yep. Clue. Uh, Correct. 
originally named Murder, you go. <laughs> it gave players the chance to step into the shoes of many detectives before them in order to ask questions and solve crimes while proving themselves innocent. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit interesting what happened with Murder! Yeah. Exclamation point. Because shortly thereafter, Pratt and his wife, Elva Pratt, who had helped him design the game, presented it. it to Waddington's executive, Norman Watson, who immediately purchased it and provided it its trademark name, which at the time was called Cludio. Cludio. Which is a play on Clue and Ludo. Ludo being the Latin term, I play. Okay. Sounds like a high-class game then. <laughs> right. I mean... I guess, I guess back in that time, like, Latin wasn't yet a dead language. You're right. Yeah, uh, and they were... <laughs> Latin's not dead today. What's not... <laughs> so another interesting fact is that they were actually playing off of another board game called Ludo. Oh, uh, okay. And Ludo is actually Parcheesi. <laughs> they called Parcheesi Ludo. They played off Ludo for Cluedo... I mean, to be fair, I'm just as confused about the name Parcheesi as I am Ludo. I did no research on Parcheesi. That's fine. Please don't ask me any questions on why it's Does called Does it have Parcheesi. anything to do with cheese? I fucking don't know <laughs> anything about Parcheesi. I've never I even like played cheese. Parcheesi. So I have no knowledge of that. Maybe that's for another. Maybe Listen, my quick this next week will be the history of Parcheesi. Listeners, please tell us what Parcheesi is. We're all clueless. Leave it in the comment Ooh. section that doesn't exist. I please saw the little, the little pun you fit in there. Clueless? Ah, We're talking about Clue. I wasn't even aware of it. Very nice. (laughs) All right. So although the patent for Cludio was granted in 1947, uh, only three years after its original conception, due to the post-war shortage in the UK, the game was not officially launched by Waddington until 1949. It was simultaneously licensed to the Parker Brothers in the U.S. for publication, where it was renamed clue mm. along with other minor changes it's because us americans we uh we didn't get bombed by the nazis <laughs> i mean that's I a huge I'm, thing <laughs> i was gonna go with we just don't pay attention to latin that's but, you know yeah, that's also like, part of it take ludo out that yeah. sounds dumb make it clue <laughs> yeah make it, it clue. make it american right <laughs> it's short which and they the did in many ways like changing the name of his name was like dr black in cludio we changed it to Mr. Body, the guy who gets murdered at the beginning of the game. Oh, I didn't even know he had a name. Yeah, it's Mr. Body. Oh, okay. Because we were like, don't make him a doctor. Why has he got to be black? Make him <laughs> Mr. Body, the guy who's on the ground. Because mm. he's a dead body. Well, exactly. <laughs> somebody. Somebody. <laughs> somebody. I don't know where I was going with that. I'm sorry. <laughs> so due to the Sherlock-like wit and elimination tactics required to win the game. It was, of course, a huge success, so much so that we still play it today. Not only that, but the game itself got a movie deal in 1985. How did that go? It was, we'll get to it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but at that point, the classic board game made its way onto the big screen. The movie included the same cast of characters from the game, played by famous actors such as Tim Curry, who played Frankenfurter in Rocky Horror Picture Show, as well as uh, Nigel Thornberry in The Wild Thornberries. Oh my god, I love it. Same that. guy, wow. Same Smashing. Guy. Exact same guy. He played the butler, a character that didn't exist in the board game, but acted kind of as a narrator and 
kind of kept the, the movie rolling. As yeah. you're talking about this, I'm I'm putting together some memories that I had stored away at some point of there like researching a little bit into this movie. So I'm picking up what you're throwing down. It's on down. Netflix. Yeah. You can watch it. Um, it did cool. initially bomb in the box office, costing $15 billion to make and only making a profit of $14.6 back, I believe. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't think we've really seen too many uh, board game movie adaptations, uh, and Clue might have been one of the reasons for that. It was also yeah. maybe the closest we could get to a board game movie. <laughs> no, we saw Mousetrap, the movie. Did we? Oh, yeah. When? Oh, yeah, we saw Mousetrap, the movie. What about Jumanji? Jumanji? Jumanji was a not a real board game. I think it might have been. Was it? But it's a, All it's a research mystical that board I game. didn't do because I didn't expect you guys yeah. to ask these questions. <laughs> but it's possible. Could, could you imagine, like, sorry, the video game? A murder, a murder life, mystery. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I think more like, imagine, like, what's that game where you have to put in all the pegs before the thing goes... Uh, like pops out concentration is that what it's called i think that is it yeah it's called yeah something like that like superman advertising it back in the 90s yes we did technically get a monopoly movie adaptation the wolf of wall street shut up you asshole you're right (laughs) i got all excited too both are very good movies both Mm -hmm. are very good board games good movie yeah so clue the movie um true to form of the game had three different endings depending on the theater that you saw it in you got a different ending uh to the movie each time and all of those three endings were included in the home release so you got a chance to see them all hmm. i don't know how netflix does it could be cool if they kind of randomize it that would be pretty cool uh but i don't know they did it with black mirror bandersnatch they they made a black mirror uh choose your own adventure episode yeah yeah Go check i never it watched out. it little plug for you it's pretty cool <laughs> so now i can hear the cogs turning in your head I thought that we were talking about a modern-day mystery. I thought that you said the movie was just released last year. Why are we talking about a movie that came out in 1985? Because we're getting there, right? It's elementary, my dear Watson. Oh, come on. <laughs> you really don't know. <laughs> he he never... it there it goes, wow. right my head. Maybe this will cause him to entertain Sherlock. Probably not, though. Yeah, yeah if you're lucky, I, I don't it. know. <laughs> so each step that we've taken on this journey together was important. Each an arrow guiding us in our society to this masterpiece of cinema. A clue. The film, yeah, a clue, giving us clues to it. Uh, the film for which we find our mystery is Ryan Johnson's 2019 mystery film, Knives Out, which now I will openly tell you guys, uh, I, I definitely, to be fully transparent, told you guys about this movie. Like, as I was figuring it out, what I wanted to talk about, I was way too excited to hold back. You totally did. I totally spoiled it for mm-hmm. you guys. But... Spilled the beans. The listener might be a little surprised if they can't read the title. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a, this is a major spo- spoiler warning coming up um, as I give the IMDb synopsis of the film, uh, which I completely ripped off IMDb. They did a much better job than I did trying to explain what was going on. Like they do. So uh, if you don't want spoilers, go ahead and pause the podcast, go and watch Knives Out, and then come back. If you left to listen to or to watch Knives Out, welcome back. Uh, Here we go. (laughs) Good place to stop. So wealthy crime novelist Harlan Thromby invites his extended family to his remote mansion on his 85th birthday in order to deliver important, though disappointing, news on a number of family squabbles that are currently happening. The next morning, however, Harlan's housekeeper Fran finds him dead in his study. 
The police, along with experienced private eye, Benot Blanc, uh, are called in to investigate. Throughout the series of interviews with members of the family, secrets are revealed as well as possible motives for murder. Richard, Harlan's son-in-law, was discovered to have cheated on his wife, Linda, Harlan's daughter, and Harlan threatened to expose him. Um, Joni, Harlan's daughter-in-law and wife of his deceased son, Neil, was exposed by Harlan after she stole $400,000 from him by sourcing duplicate checks meant for her daughter, Megan, to a private bank account. Walter, Harlan's youngest son, was fired from his father's publishing company during the birthday party, and Ransom, Linda and Richard's son, uh, had discovered he had been cut out of the will entirely. Hmm. So already we can see kind of anyone's a suspect at this point. Uh, It is then revealed that after the party, Harlan's caretaker, Marta Cabrera, took Harlan upstairs to give him his nightly medication. After beginning to play a game of Go, Harlan jokingly knocks the board off the table before Marta could give him his medication. Marta picked up the bottles and injected him, but realized that she accidentally gave him 100 milligrams of morphine. Yeah, that'll kill you. To protect his friend, Harlan gave her strict instructions on how to escape and avoid suspicion before slitting his own throat, leaving Marta shocked. Marta then drove away, parked her car, and returned to the house through the gate entrance before climbing up the trellis on the side of the house and wearing Harlan's coat and hat to confuse Walter in his peripheral vision, who had seen Marta leave, ruling her out as a suspect. The police question Marta, as she is a trustworthy source, due to her inability to lie without vomiting. But she makes it through her interrogation without fail. Suspecting foul play, Benoit is determined to find the true cause of death. The next day, Blanc, along with Marta and the police, search the house and its surroundings for clues, many of which Marta is able to cover up before the detectives can find them. Since it is the day of Harlan's will reading, the family anxiously waits the reveal and are shocked to hear that Harlan left everything to Marta, including his inheritance, the house, and his company. Very suspect. Right. Right off the bat. So, already, you're kind of... In the first act, you find out what happened to Harlan. So now you're like, if this is a murder mystery, then yeah, why I are already still know how it's going to end. Right. So if Marta's the one who gave him too much morphine and he slit his own throat to protect Marta, then what are we still doing here? Yeah, by default, you already know who done did it. Right. Who, who done did the done, the who done it. <laughs> we got so, there. <laughs> right. <laughs> Stumbled through it. So despite the family's kindness to Marta the night before, she quickly turns on her, or they quickly turn on her, but ransom the son who was kicked out of the grandson who was kicked out of the will helps her escape. Ransom and Marta then go to the local restaurant where Ransom coaxes Marta into telling him everything. It's important to note that Ransom is played by America's ass, Chris Evans. America's ass. Yeah. Captain America himself. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. That's Chris Evans. Guy. That's the guy. <laughs> this is a star studded cast that I'm going to go through here in a little bit. So meanwhile, the family members realize that if Marta can be proven as the murderer, they will regain their inheritance. They insist that the murder investigation continue, and Blanc confirms his suspicion of foul play, adding that everyone is still a potential suspect. This leads to Marta receiving a ransom note reading, 
I know what you did, along with a partial photocopy of Harlan's toxicology report. Hmm. Is this blackmail then? It kind of seems like blackmail at this point. A little bit. So Marta drives with Ransom to the medical examiner's office only to find it up in flames and a swarm of police. At Ransom's insistence, Marta checks her email and finds an address and time. Blanc spots the pair before they engage in a car chase, but Marta and Ransom are ultimately unable to evade their pursuers before Ransom is arrested after Juanette, uh, Harlan's mother and elderly matriarch of the family, falsely identifies Marta as him at the house. Uh, Marta drives to the address only to find Fran there, drugged. Marta performs CPR on her and calls the police phone line, ensuring that Fran gets to the hospital safety, or safely. On the drive back to the mansion, Marta reveals everything to Blanc, who discourages her from confessing to the family. However, Blanc tells her to stop at the last minute when he spots something in a copy of the full toxology report that Fran had hidden away. The police bring Ransom to the house and place him in a private room where Blanc and Marta are waiting. Blanc reveals that he deduced the murder and goes on to reveal that he knows. Uh, The night of the party, Ransom stormed out after discovering Marta's inheritance from Harlan and decided to frame her for his murder. Ransom Ransom swapped the contents of the medication vials and removed the emergency morphine counteragent, ensuring the morphine overdose. Ransom then swapped the vials back while the rest of the family was at Harlan's funeral. Fran, the housekeeper, saw Ransom in Harlem's study that day and deduced his involvement in Harlan's death, prompting her to send him the Ransom letter, which Ransom, funny that he's named that now, <laughs> then sent to Marta after cutting out the address. Ransom then burned down the medical examiner's office to ensure that Harlan's body or Harlan's blood work was destroyed. Ransom confronted Fran and drugged her with morphine, nearly killing her before destroying the original copy of the toxology report and emailing Marta Fran's location in the hopes of fooling the police into believing Marta had murdered Fran. Blanc then revealed that the toxology report shows that Harlan wasn't poisoned at all and that Marta had instinctively given Harlan the correct medication, but noticing the mislabel, didn't know. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's a lot. So basically, and, and there's still a little bit still to go over in the movie's premise. There's still some stuff that happens. But just to kind of catch you up, um, at the beginning of the movie, Marta was giving uh, Harlan his medicine, dropped the vials on the ground after playing game of Go, picked them both back up, and gave him 100 milligrams of a medicine to him. She turned the label, finds out that it's labeled morphine. She starts panicking because she thinks she just gave him 100 milligrams of morphine. Little did she know Ransom had actually switched the labels and that her mistake actually would have saved Harlan's life because she gave him 100 grams of the real stuff that he needed because she had done this so many times that she felt the slight difference in viscosity of the two liquids and automatically knew which one was the right thing. Hmm. Hmm. So she gave him the right medicine. But because of that, Ransom had to go through all of this stuff to still try to frame her. Right. Because it actually was a suicide. Because Marta had told Harlan, like, hey, you're, you're going to die. I gave you all this morphine, and they're going to know that I killed you. 
Ransom or Harlan trying to save his friend's life um, from going to jail and ruining everything, uh, and not to mention her mother as an illegal immigrant from a country that's never really specified, though all the family has guesses that are all wrong. Um, she is an illegal immigrant and would be sent back. Her family would be completely separated. And Harlan sacrificed himself to save her from all that by slitting his own throat, hoping that it would look like a suicide and they wouldn't look into the toxology report. Hmm. Gotcha. Wow. So it was a suicide. He did kill himself after she had given him the right medicine. But he believed he was going to die. And he didn't want his death to immediately lead to her. So he killed right. himself to make it look like a suicide. Yeah, because how easy would that be to just be like like the person who's an illegal immigrant who is caretaking of this person? Right. Well, she's not illegal. She was born in the country. Oh, okay. Her mother is. Gotcha. And that's important to realize for what I'm about to talk about next. Okay. So she's a naturalized citizen at this point, right? Correct. Okay. So it's said in the movie... You saved his life, and if he would have listened to you, because she picks up the phone and tries to call for an ambulance still, and Harlan unplugs the phone and is like, it's too late. Like, if the ambulance shows up, you're going to go to jail. If originally Harlan had listened to her, he'd still be alive. So, Marta receives a call from the hospital that says Fran is alive, forcing Ransom to admit his crimes before angrily vowing revenge and legal recourse on Marta. Because... If Fran is alive, Fran can tell the cops everything. And also, he's going to get off because it was attempted murder and not real murder because she's alive. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Um, But at the last moment, Marta vomits on Ransom, revealing that she lied and that Fran actually died at the hospital. But he had already admitted to attempted murder. Oh, gotcha. So now he has (laughs) admitted to murder. There you go. Gotcha. That's so a, that's a lot to try and like keep up with. Uh, yeah, there's I agree. a lot of characters yeah. and there's a lot of moving parts. Yes, you should definitely watch it. Yeah. Um, but enraged that he had been tricked into admitting the murder and arson, Ransom attempts to stab Marta, but flashback to the beginning of the movie as Harlan is talking about his family with Marta, he picks up the knife that he eventually slits his throat with, talking about Ransom and says, The boy doesn't know much. He doesn't really know anything. He doesn't pay attention, and he doesn't know the difference between a real knife and a prop knife. And Ransom pulls a knife out of one of Harlan's many props that he has on the wall, and he goes to plunge it into Marta's chest. But as he pulls away, he looks to see that it is a prop knife, not a real knife. Got him. It's one of those spring knives that go into the handle. So now he has attempted murder, too. (laughs) The cops take him away, and the last shot that we see of the movie um, is Ransom being put in the cop car, the family all standing out in front of this house, and Marta now stands on a higher balcony holding Harlan's signature coffee cup with a label saying, my house, my rules, my coffee written on it. (laughs) Gotcha. Wow. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. So you can see the murder mystery of all of it. Things that directly relate back to Edgar Allan Poe's story, the work of Arthur Conan Doyle, and this giant cast in this one house and this one murder, it is almost tied directly to Clue. And more importantly, Clue the movie is a listed inspiration for Knives Out, so much so that they use the same font 
in <laughs> the title. Yep, the, in the title of Knives Out, uh, as they did for Clue. And in the end credits, all of the cast, who I will read now, uh, but all of the cast are uh, shown in portrait uh, that are almost the exact same as the portraits on the Clue cards. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> it's paying homage to Clue. Exactly. Wow. So let's go over the cast real quick, just before we jump into anything too extreme. Um, so we have Ana del Armas as Marta Cabrera. Um, she hasn't done too, too much other than date Ben Affleck, which we can't stop talking about for yeah. some reason. Um, <laughs> Joseph Gordon-Levitt has a... a I haven't uh, seen him in any new movies in a while. Well, he has an Easter egg. He plays basically a TV cop that the sister of Marta is oh, watching. Okay. Um, Chris Evans, of course, mm-hmm. plays Ransom. Um, Daniel Craig of 007 fame uh, <laughs> plays Detective Benoit Blanc. Uh, and he puts on a southern accent and talks like this the entire time. Oh, my goodness. And it is just ear sex if you're listening to it. <laughs> and he's saying lines from from Sherlock Holmes, and he's referencing it. So much to the point where uh, when he first meets Marta and decides that she is um, uh, basically a machine of truth, he calls her Watson. He says, come along, Watson, <laughs> and like keeps her as his partner for the rest of the movie. Even though, of course, we know because of dramatic irony um that she is the one who committed the murder in quotations jamie lee curtis is linda drysdale uh who is the daughter of harlan and there's a subplot going on where harlan reveals that her husband is having an affair basically through a game that they play which is writing letters and invisible ink the husband finds the letter uh, on his desk, rips it open and sees it's a blank piece of paper, takes the ball that he always fidget, that Harlan always fidgets with, throws it out the window. And this is just Ryan being an excellent director. Um, the ball is taken by a dog um, and then taken by Blanc when the dog fetches it to get the piece of the uh, thing that she climbs up the side of the house with that trellis, broke off, yeah. the trellis. Uh, and makes its way all the way back to Linda, who goes to put it back in her dad's office, discovers the blank letter, and then uses the invisible ink to read that her husband is having an affair. This ball is karma. It is a physical symbol of karma huh. that he takes it off the desk, throws it outside. It makes its way all the way back to Linda. And because she has it and she knows where it goes, she goes to the desk and finds the letter, <laughs> which is just, ah, uh, it's it's. It's almost like a incredible Rube Goldberg machine of cheating in a way. Yeah, kind of. And it's <laughs> well, it, it's a symbol. It's it's a physical symbol of like what goes around comes around. The truth will always come out. Mm-hmm. Like you are the cause of this, and because of you, this is happening. Yep. Yep. Cause and effect. Yep. Um, Christopher Plummer plays Harlan Thrombey, uh, who, if you don't know, you do know because he's the father from The Sound of Music. I've never seen The Sound of Music. People out there who have seen The Sound of Music, you immediately know who I'm talking about. Yeah, he's the but strict guy with the whistle who goes, Children, come out here and no sing idea. your songs. And no that. idea. That is correct. Yeah. Uh, another interesting person in the movie is Jaden Martell, who played the main character in It Chapter One that recently came out. Mm, uh, his okay. career is still alive and going, which is great news. But I have not seen it. You haven't seen It? Have you seen the original? Ooh. 
I don't watch horror movies. I sense a future episode coming along. You definitely do that. I'll play horror games all day long, but not horror movies. That's totally fair. I'm weird, I know. So I want to be completely transparent in saying that I had no idea what I was going to talk about this week on the podcast, other than like this one slight idea that I had that I wasn't mm-hmm. sure how I was going to execute. Um, but that's when Chloe and I went to visit a family that was, you know, relatively close, three and a half hours. Um, <laughs> but no worries. We took all precautions necessary when traveling to see these people, as you should as well. Um, and while there, when we had a bit of downtime, Chloe's mom suggested that we watch Knives Out. And I was like, well, it might be a good murder mystery. Like, I don't mind watching it. But after my initial watch, I had this weird feeling like there was something important that I had missed. And searching subreddits of the movie later at dinner that night, I found that other people felt the same way. Shout out to the uh, subreddit r slash knives out official. Those guys are awesome and helped me with this theory because uh, I wrote it out for them. And they like commented on it and helped me kind of work my way through this. But we finished eating, packed up the car hugged Chloe's parents goodbye, and started our three-and-a-half-hour drive back. And three-and-a-half hours is a lot of time to think about a movie. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe it didn't help that at the time we were listening to a podcast that was talking about our current situation in the world and the conservative versus liberal climate of the country. That seems like a lot of political podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, you could be listening to anyone. But because of this, suddenly pieces of the movie started to click. Hmm. I'm not saying that every movie has to be a piece of art or a snapshot of the world at its current moment with all of its flaws and beauties exposed. It is possible for a murder mystery to just be a fun whodunit with no other implication. But I have a strong feeling that there is a lot more to this. This is your warning that we are about to get a little political. Uh, I want to preface this by saying that all of my assumptions are mine. They're my assumptions and... Ryan Johnson hasn't come forward to claim that the movie was about any of this. With all that being said, here we go. Yeah, it's all speculation. Exactly. It is me looking... <laughs> it's all just a theory. Uh, no, we're not going to say it. <laughs> nope. I almost said it, but I'm not going to... Yeah, we're not going to get a copyright claim. <laughs> I'm not going to say it. Not twice in one episode. God forbid. <laughs> So I believe this movie is about the death of the American dream, which is interesting to try to tackle uh, in a movie. But I think that to get the point across to the audience that Ryan wanted to get it across to, he had to treat it as a magic trick. And any of you who know a good magic trick, it's basically look over here, look over here, look over here. This is where the magic's happening. Now look. Mm-hmm. Sleight of hand, yeah. You don't know that the trick's going on right under your nose. So let me explain this movie in a different light. A family is dealing with tragedy, and there is this outsider who is also feeling this tragedy. And suddenly, because of this tragedy, this outsider is lifted up and given all of these uh, different things to help them basically put them ahead of everybody else. The family who at the time was grieving with the person now starts attacking them and saying things like, you don't belong here. Your family's not from here. You're not one of us. We worked hard for this. Why do you get it? This belongs to us. Mm -hmm. 
now they're the enemy. And they try to coax them in so many different ways of like, let us have it and we'll take care of you, we promise, and things like that. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, what happens if the person who receives all of this decides, you're not worth it, you people aren't good people, this doesn't belong to you, it now belongs to me. That almost seems like you're making an argument for immigrants in America. So here are a couple of points in the movie that stuck with me. Mm -hmm. One thing is, Richard, the man who cheats on his wife, at one point is talking about Marta and saying, we all love Marta. She's a great worker. Immigrants, they get the job done. And he looks gotcha. over to one of the cops. The cop's like excited. He's like, Hamilton, I saw it before it made it to Broadway. Mm -hmm. Immediately, the, we, we've seen this in movies before. More importantly, we've seen this in Get Out, where he's like, I've seen Hamilton. I voted for uh, Barack Obama twice, and I would have voted him in on a third term. It's that I'm not racist because I did this thing. Right. Exactly, yeah. And that's kind of what it's playing into. Throughout the movie, the family all tries to say, like, Marta's great. Her and her family came here, like, implying that they there's this giant argument around a fire when they're all, like, hanging out after the death of their father where they're, like, discussing politics, and they talk about the children locked in cages. It's set in this world. They're talking about, like, they never name anyone, but they say he, like him. He locked people in cages. How can you support him? Mm -hmm. And they say things like that. And the other side, both come off as rather liberal, but the other side is basically like, well, maybe we just need an asshole in charge. Like, we knew it was an asshole who we were putting in charge, so what did you expect? Mm. Things like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like, we needed an asshole. And in trying to make a point, they're like, take Marta, for example. Her family came here legally from Ecuador or Ukraine or wherever they came from. And Marta's just kind of like keeps quiet, doesn't say anything, yeah. which is weird because before they were like showing that Marta was a member of the family, they showed them gesturing Marta into this family group. Right. But they play that part back in context and you realize that it's Richard gesturing her over to use her as a device to be like, I'm not racist because Marta did it the right way. Like people who do it like Marta did it should be given whatever they're, they're meant to have. Gotcha. And it is even said the line, I built everything from the ground up. I only took like $10,000 from my parents as a startup. And then I created all of this stuff. And it is pushed and pushed as like the family argues over this will that basically that's their family that grew it. They deserve it. Right. They inherit into this thing. Yeah. And another interesting line that I want to pinpoint is a line where they say, my father built this house from the ground up. This belongs to our family. And all of it kind of starts tying together that maybe this movie is about more than just a family. Maybe it's about an immigrant who takes care or has this idea of the American dream that is beautiful and clean and crisp and good and she spends time and she cares for it. And she maybe doesn't make her way in, in the most legal way, but she cares about it and she loves the country, mm -hmm. per se. The country, because of that, gives her all of these opportunities because she's a hard worker and she's kind. Mm -hmm. And suddenly all the people who didn't work for it and just expected to have it are being told, well, you don't get this now, she gets it because she worked for it and you guys didn't. And they immediately are like, this belongs to us. This is our birthright. Mm -hmm. We don't have to earn it because we've been here. We've been doing this. And though I didn't earn it, my family did. Or like 
the, the people who built this country wanted me to have it. And this is basically saying what happens in a world where we go, no, like you didn't earn it. It doesn't belong to you anymore because you didn't try to uphold it. This American dream of build yourself up from the ground up. Mm-hmm. Of build not, yourself up by your bootstraps. Right. So it, maybe, and again, this is my opinion, but maybe what Ryan is trying to say is this country belongs to the people who earn it or this house belongs to Marta because she earned it. And the people who didn't earn it shouldn't get it. And they shouldn't cry over the fact that they don't get it. Some other comparisons are like the family tells her before she inherits everything, like, we're going to take care of you. And then immediately after are like, take care of us. Like, you need to take care of us. Mm-hmm. And they try to trick her into like, they, they criminalize her right. at one point even, where they're like, well, if we make her look like the murderer, if we find out that she's the murderer, then we get it. So what if we just make her bad? Mm-hmm. What if she's a bad guy? And they manipulate their children into like calling her and being like, my mom's really poor and we really need this money. So now they're manipulating the younger generations into doing it. Yeah. And I, one thing that I really love is the line that I mentioned before where Harlan says, he doesn't know a real knife from a stage knife. And there's a term called cutting blow, where in an argument, if you say something that's true and that hurts and that can't be disputed, that's a cutting blow. But what if a fact is a prop knife? Mm. He doesn't know the difference between what is true and what is fake. So he argues with these fake points that don't pierce her. And thus, it does nothing for him. So you watch it with this kind of lens of what if this is a metaphor? And I don't know if it is. You've laid out a I lot. Mean, yeah, <laughs> and, and I mean, like a lot of the things that you've laid out haven't been subtle uh, call-outs to this stuff. Like it, it's like... I can it seems, see everything. It seems very pointed. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, it's, it's so pointed to the fact that Marta doesn't come to the funeral. She isn't invited to the funeral of her friend who she takes care of. Mm-hmm. And the family that night, like two or three of the family members come up to her and they say... I was outvoted. I thought you should have been there. But, like, what happens with Congress every single time that things go bad? They want reelected. They're like, well, I voted for the immigrants to be taken care of, but I was outvoted. Every single one of them says it. How can they all be outvoted? And then you raise your arms and say, well, you know, I what, tried. What can so you do? Right. What can you exactly. Do? It, it, it draws an interesting parallel um, to the whole idea of. Um, and Grant, stop me if like I'm getting like too far into a soapbox or whatever. You're getting too political but, already. <laughs> uh, it, it draws a lot of comparisons to the idea of like Americans love it when uh, people who are underprivileged, say like immigrants, come in and take these sorts of jobs that normal people don't want to do. These like low wage, uh, high effort jobs, like like an in home nurse, like an in uh, in home nurse, and I would I would even go so far as to say it's like a lot of like farm hands, yeah. like. Yeah, blue-collar jobs. A lot of blue-collar jobs because, I mean, we live in a capitalist country. Um, the people who are owning and running the businesses, their main pro- their main motive is profit. Right. And so they're going to hire the lowest wage they can possibly get away with. Right. Um, and sometimes that means hiring an illegal immigrant because yeah. you don't have to pay Social Security, taxes, anything like that. I mean, from, if we're looking at it from a pure capitalist perspective, yeah, it makes the most sense to hire an illegal immigrant for a job that requires no training. Yeah. Uh, or very little. And 
to go along with that, like a lot of Americans, we directly like benefit from that. Like we get lower costs on food, lower costs on services, lower costs on all of these things. So we love to benefit from it. Right. Like mm-hmm. We love to get this benefit from it. But as soon as it becomes a political thing, a lot of Americans will turn around and be like, those immigrants are stealing our jobs. I think that that is also laid out in this movie because until she becomes a problem, she's one of them. She's part of the family. They treat her as one of the family. They think that she's this great person. But then once she's handed all of this, she's the problem. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of, I think when you're, when you're in the line of like, they're great when they're doing their jobs, but when they start acting like people, that's when I have a problem with it. Yeah. It's like you don't realize that the American dream is preached to everyone. Like to us as children, we know what the American dream is. And to them as children, they know what the American dream is. Yeah, it's a lot with like foreign countries. Yeah. A lot. Like the marketing measure, marketing material for America is all like, you can come here, you can be rich, you can make something out of yourself, support yourself up by your bootstraps, all that. I mean, that's the whole reason why I know that my family is here in the first place. Like, yeah, that's why my, a lot of us are here, yeah, because my, they get the marketing material. My great-grandfather came here from Italy strictly for that reason, after yeah. his family was kind of outed during World War II. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's to make something out of yourself. That's what America is all about. I mean, to the outside world looking in. Yeah. And then once you're here, you, you bust your ass, you know, you're out there on the farm chopping down weed or husking corn all day, mm-hmm. getting paid like two bucks an hour or something like that. And that's your life. Yeah. Well, you and, work all day at that and, and to you go don't along get with any it, thanks for it. And kind of like what I was saying, it, it kind of goes along with the whole idea of where Americans are not afraid to use and abuse that. Yeah. Use yeah, and abuse the marketing of it's the American dream. Pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Yeah. Keep working hard. You yeah. Know? Keep working hard. And someday you'll get from $2 an hour to $2.25. It's almost a question of what is the American dream and is it a thing of perspective? Yeah. Because to some people, the American dream is I borrowed $10,000 from my parents and now I have $200,000. That's the American dream. See, that's but, a new American dream. But. That, you're right. That is the new American dream. But what the American dream is at its core, what it is meant to be, is you can start with nothing and you can make something of yourself. Yeah, through it's hard ev- work everyone, and determination. So let's, everyone has an opportunity. Right. Yes. So let's take all of that. Let's apply it to the movie. In the long run, we have two characters who I think represent the most, and that is Ransom and Marta. At the beginning of the movie, we find out Marta trying to aid for the American dream and this extended metaphor that we're building, thinks that she messes up because she gives it the wrong medicine or she cares for it in the wrong way because that's what is told to her through the labels is that she, she's messed up and she's killing the American dream. We find out that those labels were switched by Ransom and that because Ransom has filled her with these lies, supposedly she killed her own chance at the American dream, even though it was Ransom who caused it. So moving forward from that, she didn't mess it up because she ended up going with her gut and trusting her instinct instead of believing what the labels said. Or it's an accident in the movie, but mm-hmm. the fact is still there. The vials are basically her, her view of the right and wrong thing. And that is switched by Ransom, who represents, I'll say, patriotic people who believe that America belongs to them. It's the new American dream versus the old American dream, right? 
So because he switched these labels and tried to make her kill the American dream, thus so he could have it for himself, um, she goes with her instinct and does the right thing and actually doesn't kill the American dream, right? So then we're, we're to ask who is Marta and who is Ransom in this analogy. Um, it being on obvious that Marta is people who have immigrated into America and Ransom is the people who already live here and basically think yeah. it belongs to them. And throughout the movie, Marta is manipulated by Ransom into believing what basically Ransom wants yeah. them to think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that really comes to play at the end of the movie where basically she finds out this is all just a big lie and that I've earned what I have. And Ransom's left just kind of to figure it out. Yeah. yeah. So this all raises a really important question um, that I want to ask you to um, based on the perspective of this movie and what it's presenting. Do you think that the, um, the people who uh, are already here, uh, the people who say that they already have a claim to the American dream, are they intentionally killing it in an effort to demonize these other people, these immigrants, in order to make their claim more valid? I think because of just the movie and the way it's set up, that Harlan representing the American dream is strictly for Marta. I think that it's a case-by-case basis. Mm. Um, but that being said, I do think that the people who take claim to it often do lead the other Im- immigration people People who have immigrated in. Immigrants. Um, thank you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I don't, it feels dirty to we'll say. I try to find my way around it. but yeah, um, It's turned into a dirty word. It really has. Yeah. Well, um, I, I don't think it's necessarily... I think phrasing it as a dirty word is like not the right way to approach it. I think it's more so it's become such a politically charged word. Yeah, yeah. that it feels yeah. aggressive to say like immigrant. You know, yeah. like people yeah. who have immigrated here. Yeah. It's um, like a gut punch. Oh, yeah. immigrant. But uh, I, I feel like that's mostly a product of our direct environments. That might be yeah, true. Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But as I was saying, um, I think that they steer the people who have immigrated here into thinking that they are the problem, just as Marta, for the for most of the movie, thought she's the one who killed Harlan. Yeah, well, let's take this one step further. Any person, any immigrant that I've spoken to are the most patriotic people I've ever talked to. Because they worked to get here. They appreciate yeah. what they have. Yeah, they're like... They're, America's great. I love doing all this. And in the old country, it was shit. And to say America is the best in the world, that means something. Yeah. And as, as far as answering your question, Michael, the, the whole intent thing, intent is a really hard thing to prove. Right. <laughs> yeah, no, so, I mean, I mean, it's a, it's a hard thing to prove, I would say, in like a judicial and, system. Yeah, in a legal, in a legal context. System. But as far as, this almost breaks down into... The two political parties, in a way. Not to get too political once again. I mean, we're already knee-deep in it. Okay, so... <laughs> I warned. Yeah. <laughs> I think a good compare, like a good par- uh, direct thing to look at is the whole uh, Dreamers. Dreamers, yep. DACA, yeah. too. And, yeah. Uh, like, the whole idea of, like, these people who were brought here illegally, but when they were too early to actually make that decision. So, in the case, this would be Marta. Mm-hmm. Um, should be given the fair chance to uh, care for and love and grow this country. Yeah. Yeah. Um, whereas you have Republicans who are saying like, well, no, 
they still came here illegally. They still didn't follow the right path. And it doesn't matter what they have grown, what they have, what their patriotism level is. Um, like at the end of the day, they're still here illegally. So yeah. here's, here's an Harmless. interesting thing that I want to present to you is that in the movie, it feels almost purposeful that the entire family seems like they are on the fence. Mm-hmm. They are displayed kind of liberal. Yeah, I was um, going to say, that it's, but, it's very interesting because it seems like throughout the entire thing, they're portrayed as these people who want to be seen as liberals. Right. But when it comes to the brass tacks and wanting to actually do anything about it, they don't follow through with it. And that raises the question of, like, if this isn't just a topic of conversation that we're talking about, when you're in the mud and thick of it, when something is presented to you, when there is someone who immigrated here standing in the way of what you want, are you still going to have those opinions? Mm-hmm. I you, mean, at are the, you just going to posture? Are you just saying it because you know it's the right thing to say? Mm-hmm. When it comes down to the brass tacks of it, if it affects you personally, are you going to accept it? Or are you going to turn into the kind of person who doesn't want the person there? Or yeah. wants them to give up what they've built? Or, yeah. or wants are, to... are you willing to sacrifice something for this other person yeah the the family that presented themselves as liberal several times throughout the movie go to marta and say be a real shame if your mom got sent back and things like (laughs) that like okay (laughs) i'm telling you right now that if you take claim to this money you're gonna have to like talk about your finances and how you got here and how your mom got here and they'll probably send your mom back and they're like if you give us back the money we can find the resources we can get the lawyers to help you out of that sticky situation and she's like so you're telling me that you guys have the resources to get me out of this? And they're like, yeah. And she's like, those are my resources. So I have them. I don't need you. Thank you for telling me I can find my way out of this on my own. Oh, and the door gets slammed in that family nice. member's face. It's an excellent scene. It's an excellent movie to tie it all up. And I feel, and I don't know, again, and I, I just want to push this, that I am not claiming to be uh, in contact with Ryan Johnson I don't know what he was thinking when he wrote this or directed it. I don't think anyone is realistically going to think that we've been talking to the director. (laughs) Well, I messaged him on Instagram. He didn't respond. (laughs) Hey, you tried. I did. (laughs) But that's just my opinion on the movie. And I think that if you watch it with that sort of shade. Yeah, that frame. You can see where I'm coming from. And maybe a movie that was just meant to be a goofy whodunit has a little bit deeper meaning to it. Ooh, nice. You went deep. I went deep. I do really enjoy, like, though, though I know that it's not, like, something that is always com- comfortable being talked about. I, I personally really enjoy talking about politics. Yeah. Like, it's, I don't know. We'll have a political podcast one day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're political when we have to be. Um, right. But I think that, I mean, you to take notes around well, this one. It's, right. it's one of those things, too, like, Anything and everything is political in some sort of way. Right, it's right. just about whether or not you want to accept that. Yeah. And yeah. Whether you want to analyze and move forward with that. And you want what to a, unmask the beast. Yeah. What a perfect theme uh, to to consider that on as this movie, which wears a mask of being this classic kind of murder mystery. All of the steps that we took, to, this movie took inspiration from Sherlock Holmes with like, there are two dogs that bark or that basically happily greet everybody except for the murderer, except for Ransom. Mm-hmm. They bark at and they attack. And that's straight from Sherlock Holmes. Right. And they take all of these 
tropes to mask the fact that it's discussing a very real problem that's happening. And this was written in 2019. This isn't like today's like elections coming up, let's talk about mm-hmm. it kind of world. This is this was happening back then. This was around the time of the the kids in cages and things like that. Right. It was it's still, still going on. Prominent, I know. Yeah. Um but very prominent in the news and people were talking about this movie isn't old. It's still a very real problem. Mm-hmm. So go watch Knives Out. Uh, if you have already watched it, or if you haven't watched it and you still sat through the podcast, um, go watch Knives Out. Look at it from whatever lens you wish to. Enjoy it as a whodunit if that's what you want to do. But if you want to get a little bit deeper, take a look into that. Um, we now do have our own subreddit, which is r slash entertain this, which you can get on there. You can comment on things that you find or other connections that you want to make. Um, and that's all that I got. Oof. Nice job. Yeah. I actually was very, like, I had seen a lot of advertisements for this movie. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. It was in movie theaters quite a while. Yeah. It, it looked like this goofy whodunit, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. I, I honestly had no interest in really seeing it. <laughs> I didn't either. I was like, who cares? You know, yeah, murder like, mystery. The, the only thing that would have pulled me in would have been the cast. Yeah. Honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, but now, where where is it? Is it available to be streamed? It is available to be streamed, I believe, on Amazon. Amazon um, Prime. Yep. As well as you can go to Target and get the DVD for like 14 bucks. I actually have the DVD, so I can lend <laughs> oh, it out okay, to you cool. guys. Nice. Yeah. If you want it. Yeah. Or cool. you can pirate it, of course, but I wouldn't recommend don't do that. that. Hey, no, don't no do one would ever do that. Like, don't, even, don't even joke about that. That's, would you steal a dollar from your mom's purse? Would you steal a car? I would download a house in a minute. <laughs> 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 All right, passing it over to Michael with this week's Quick Notes. Off the back of something that, uh, you know, was very real and very politically charged, I figured that it would be the uh, best time to bring up something from uh, my teenage years that meant a lot to me. Um, The absolute shit reality TV shows that VH1 aired (laughs) nonstop from the early to the uh, mid to late 2000s. Oh boy! <laughs> yeah. Um, so it all up for this one. <laughs> yeah. So it all kind of started with uh, a MySpace personality known as Tila Tequila, uh, which many of you probably and should not know. Um, no. She was basically one of the one of the first um, influencers, I guess you could say. I didn't even know MySpace had influencers. Yeah. 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 It's yeah. <laughs> um, a proto influencer. And she had a show uh, called A Shot of Love clearly playing off her name, Tila Tequila. Um, And it is just filled with the absolute uh, best and brightest, um, if you could imagine. Uh, It was lots of people just vying for Tila's love and affection, just like how we see on like The Bachelor and The Bachelorette, just in a, um, the the best way for me to put it is the, uh, an ultimately trashy way. Hmm. Uh, (laughs) And everyone who's involved with this just fully accepting that, which is the part that makes it, very fun mm-hmm. and uh vh1 saw the success of this because vh1 used to be all about music videos yeah. um they saw this and like well we need to keep going but tequila tequila she found her love it didn't last <laughs> season <laughs> there, two there was a season two uh so they found another person this time they found someone who was a little bit of a higher stature um flavor flave of 
public enemy fame. Yeah, uh, <laughs> big old chain. Oh yeah, he's the he's the guy who's known for screaming his own name like Flavor Flav. And if the, I mean, granted, that was probably the whitest way anyone's ever said that. <laughs> uh, and then he would also be known for wearing a giant chain with a large ticking clock. Um, this kind of brought about this new idea of. Uh, naming all of the different contestants. So Flavor, Flavor of Love featured some absolute winners uh, going by the names of Hoops, New York, Pumpkin, uh, Smiley, Peaches, uh, Dimples with a Z. Uh, um, Gotta have the Z. Uh, Picasso, Smokey, uh, Delicious, spelled D-E-E-L-I-S-H-I-S, that's not how you spell delicious. <laughs> My and, brain is melting. Yeah, so this is <laughs> the, this is, this is the great so. part about these shows is it would it would allow you to just kind of melt away and just kind of forget about everything else you're doing. So for me, uh, the big thing where I got introduced to these was when I would get home from school. Uh, I would get home right before the afternoon block of cartoons. So most of the time it was like still either playing like Cartoon Network playing like Boomerangs or like nothing but Tom and Jerry. Where it's Which like, isn't stuff that you wanted to watch. I mean, Tom and Jerry's great, but <laughs> oh, like yeah. I've seen at this point I've seen the same episode over and over and over and over again. So I wanted something new. So and for the longest time I wasn't allowed to go up into the channels of like MTV or VH1 because yeah. this majesty was waiting for me. Hmm. <laughs> so... In this time where all of these older cartoons were still playing, I would go up and watch these because this is all that VH1 would ever play. And I got introduced to all this. And it was just a magical, magical point in my life where I got to see uh, the best and brightest that America had to offer. Um, VH1 ended up taking all of this, and they created spinoffs. So they actually started, instead of taking celebrities uh, from the outside known world, they ended up taking these people who became celebrities through these shows and making them the suitors of their own shows. Uh. So we ended up seeing uh, New York, who was the second place uh, contestant in the first season of Flavor of Love. She went and got her own show called I Love New York. Um, there was oh there was also the rock of love this is like a weird trickle down system of fame it's beautiful it's like a pyramid scheme i'm of honestly fame. very sad that vh1 doesn't really go too much into this anymore uh because mtv picked it right up i'm sure <laughs> um <laughs> and uh the rock of love which starred uh brett michaels of poison fame which yeah. for poison if you don't know they I, I watched the rock of love yeah the rock of love was great like it had like it was essentially like find uh, find him a groupie that he could uh, quote unquote fall in love with. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> Good. And from there, they VH1 saw just how much people absolutely loved these shows and how many people were watching them that they created game shows based off of these. One of the forgotten gems of this time was a show called I Love Money where they would take the different contestants from all of these different shows uh, and would put them against each other to compete for, I think, like a million dollars. And they would have to... It was essentially Big Brother meets uh, Fear Factor. Huh. 
where people would join up, create alliances, and week in and week out, they would compete against each other for the ultimate effort of claiming $1 million. And it's really not about anything more meaningful than that. Uh, it's all about capitalism. <laughs> it's all about getting that money. Getting that money, no matter if it's in the trashiest way possible. And I that's, love Benjamins. Oh, and God, it's something that I miss. It's something that I think this world needs a little bit more of. We don't uh, have time to focus on that. <laughs> but ultimately, uh, I just wanted to bring this back into the light of the world uh, because it's a forgotten part of TV history that... I don't feel gets enough attention and respect. This yeah. sounds like a YouTube click hold that I'm going to slowly be dragged down. <laughs> It'll happen I to you too. You, I guarantee you, you're <laughs> going to find uh, some absolutely, absolute gems of memes that come out of this. Some banger memes. Oh yeah. Hey. If you would. Yeah. Way to, way to keep up with the kids. Yeah. That's, that's the real American dream. I think. Absolutely. Getting on a reality show and then, you know, winning a million dollars, winning a million dollars. That's the new American dream. on it for the rest of your life. <laughs> Lord help us. <laughs> Well, thank you all for watching this episode of Entertain This. I hope you enjoyed. Weren't too turned off by all the politics talk or by the talk of VH1. Uh, <laughs> How can you be turned off from that? That's whatever. Reality <laughs> TV is the best TV. Yeah. <laughs> uh, next week, Nick takes the stage. Uh, he will be doing the dark comedy. side of comedy. He's going to be presenting on the dark side of comedy. Wow. That sounds really interesting. Can't yeah. wait to hear it. Well, thank you all for listening. You said it. Thank I, you. I said yeah. it. Yep. Cue the intro. Outro. <laughs> this week's episode was written and hosted by Alex Steele, with additional commentary by Michael Savoya and Nick Mustakangas. Our intro music is Rush Bubble by Aaron Spencer, with additional music by DJW. We release new episodes every Friday. Thanks for listening. <laughs>